Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to a special Christmas edition of The Naked Scientists, and that's with Kat Arney. Hello. With Dave Vansell. Hi there. With Helen Scales. Hello. And of course me, Chris Smith. That's right, we've got the whole team of us here for a special festive programme in which we're going to be picking out some of our favourite scientific discoveries that have happened this year, including a revolutionary new space rocket design that's actually based on a table decoration, very Christmassy. That should help to protect astronauts from radiation out in space. Also, a tissue from a tyrannosaur, how scientists have actually extracted the original dinosaur tissue from a fossil and the king of the swingers how orangutans have worked out the perfect way to get around but without wasting any energy that's all on the way helen thanks chris and continuing with the festive theme and we are all dreaming of a white christmas but is it true that no two snowflakes are exactly the same if you were to add up the number of possible ways of making a snowflake you easily find it's far greater than the total number of atoms in the universe <laughs> So we'll be hearing how snowflakes form later on in the programme. Plus, we'll also be revealing the most nutritious way to cook your Christmas dinner. Should you boil, steam or microwave your vegetables to keep all that lovely goodness in? Ben's been down to the Dunn Nutrition Unit in Cambridge to investigate. And we'll be bringing you his report, delivered whilst holding his nose, later on in the show. Helen, and talking of kitchens and cooking things up, for Kitchen Science this week, I thought we'd investigate whether it's true that bread always does land better butter side down. So if you want to help us, pop a piece of bread in the toaster and get ready to butter it. I'm explaining what to do shortly. It's really easy. We shall find out the truth. And uh, later on, we will also be solving this attractive puzzle. Where do permanent magnets get their energy or power? I could put a fridge magnet on a fridge, and it seems as if it will stay there forever with no sign of any power source. Can we not harness this invisible and seemingly endless source of energy? So, where does a magnet get its sticking power from, and can we harness its power? The answer will be coming up. We're also going to be hearing from Professor Richard Wiseman about what the Christmas cards you send say about you. Thank you very much, Kat. That's all on the way, so don't forget, if you'd like to ask us any questions, science, technology or medicine, email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Uh, let's kick off with a festive look at what's been happening, we think, in terms of the most important science stories of this year. Dave, what, what caught your eye? not sure whether it's really the most important, but it's quite a nice festive one. Um, I really liked a nice story which I did a couple of months ago where they discovered a way of making spaceships which to protect the astronauts from radiation. Now, um, there's a big problem in space. You get these very high-energy particles, it's protons, little tiny at- bits of atoms flying around incredible speeds. And if they hit astronauts, it can um, give them cancer, give, even give them radiation sickness. And by the time you're going to Mars, if you're travelling all the way to Mars or even further, the, the astronauts are quite likely to get really quite ill. 
Now, and the, on your Earth, you're quite protected by these, all the atmosphere and the magnetic field tends to concentrate in the North and South Poles. But as soon as you're in space, it can be really dangerous. Now, an, astro, uh, uh, an engineer working um, in Virginia has worked out how to do this. What you do is you make the spaceship a bit like one of those table decorations with a pineapple and lots of sticks with cherries on the end. You make a spaceship out of a pineapple? Not out of a pineapple. <laughs> it looks like a pineapple with cherries <laughs> stuck into it on cocktail sticks. It's not a very big spaceship then. Maybe scale it up a little well, as well. And everyone knows you do need to have cheese, actually, instead of cherries on your pineapple. But how does it work? How does it work? Well, the idea is that you charge up the cherries, basically, to really high voltages. And then when one of these charged particles come down, instead of coming straight down and hitting the astronauts, it gets attracted to one of the cherries and hits that and does the damage to the cherry, not the astronauts, keeping the astronauts nice and safe Where inside. do you get the power from? Because that sounds pretty energy-hungry. Well... Building up really high voltages isn't a problem as long as, you're, as long as there's nowhere for the voltage to flow. So because you're in space, it's a vacuum, it doesn't conduct electricity very well, so you can probably few solar panels and it should be fine. And so is this very much on the drawing board or is it just theoretical? It's still very theoretical and it's really a problem if you want to go to Mars or going a long way and that's going to be good 20 Why haven't they done years. this already? Um, because no one's really got... The furthest anyone's gone is the moon, and the amount of time it takes to get to the moon and back, the probability of you actually getting hit by a really bad radiation storm is quite low, and luckily the astronauts fluked it and didn't get killed. But there was actually a significant chance they could have done. <laughs> Space pineapples, whatever next. Um, the story that I really like to pick up from this year is um, really, really exciting to me, because this is the field that I used to work in, is the field of stem cells. Now, previously it's been thought the only way we could get hold of embryonic stem cells was by taking an embryo at very early stage, when it's a little ball of cells. You take out the cells from within that sort of football and grow them in the lab, and these uh, cells can be coaxed into becoming any different type of tissue in the whole of the human body because that's what they do when they're making you as a baby. So the idea was that then we could make replacement tissues for people who've, you know, had had accidents or uh, to repair damaged brains and all these kind of things. But there are obviously huge ethical issues with basically harvesting embryos to make cells for human use. And the really exciting development this year that was published by researchers in the US and Japan was that they found a cocktail of four proteins that you can add these into skin cells and it will reprogram the skin cells back into an embryonic fate. Now, you know, some researchers have known about these kind of reprogramming genes for a while and, and some of them have quite recently been discovered. But to show that you can stick this cocktail into a cell, it will forget that it's being a skin cell. It will forget what it's doing. It will kind of take off all the markers off all its genes that tell it that it's a skin cell and it will become completely naive again. And they've managed to turn these cells into brain tissue, into heart tissue in the lab. I think it's really exciting. I mean, so much so that Ian Wilmot, the, the daddy of cloning in the UK, who cloned Dolly the sheep, said that he was no longer going to work on embryonic stem cells, but he thought that this technology was the way forward. And I really do think it's so exciting. Do you think so this, this will overcome a lot of the ethical problems, but haven't some of the genes they've had to use been linked to cancers? And and therefore people are concerned for that reason. This is the issue. And the problem with sticking embryonic cells into someone is that the cells may not know properly what they're meant to be doing and can go out of control and can cause cancer. Because cancer is basically cells that have forgotten what they're meant to be up to. So yes, that's a big scientific issue to be overcome. But that's a scientific issue that would need to be overcome with embryonic stem cells as well. I think it's a really exciting challenge for scientists and it, it has opened up a, a whole world of cell reprogramming. 
Sounds really exciting. As someone myself who's really interested in what was on Earth before we were, because I'm quite interested in dinosaurs and things, this story, which came out earlier this year, really caught my attention. It was Mary Schweitzer. Now, I've had the benefit of meeting her. She presented some of her data when uh, she was at St. Louis at the AAAS, that's the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, in 2006 when, when I was there. And she works at North Carolina State University, and she created a bit of a storm because she said she could get original dinosaur fossil, uh, t- dinosaur tissue, from fossils and what she did was to make an accident in her laboratory to start with and this unlucky mistake this lucky mistake led to the discovery of what she thinks is real tissue she got a piece of tyrannosaurus rex and they decided to what's called demineralize the fossil so you add some chemicals that will dissolve some of the rock away they were going to make some sections or thin sections through it so this should make that easier if you take some of the minerals out and it got left for a bit longer than they thought and expecting the fossil to have completely fallen apart and disappeared uh, she was surprised to see what looked like something holding it all together and they've gone and looked at this much more closely and it's dinosaur bone tissue and it looks like it's the original proteins that were in the dinosaur bone so when they looked at it with antibodies that could recognize the same protein in us they all locked on in just the right place on the on the protein which suggests it really is protein there the antibodies are binding to then they put some under an electron microscope and if you look at collagen which is the skin tissue we have under a microscope at high power it looks stripy because it's got certain combinations of amino acid building blocks that, that soak up electrons and make it look very dark and then pale, like a zebra crossing, and they saw that. And the next thing they did was to then feed some of the tissue into a device called a mass spectrometer, which can chemically analyse things, and this one suggested that it really was the uh, real tissue. It was, it was this protein from skin collagen. It, how on earth can it have survived that long, actually, you know... How many millions of years old is this stuff? This is a 65 million year old fossil. How on earth did that stuff manage well, to survive Well, that's what people that were saying. How does it survive so long? Because it's been, uh, it, it would presumably have just disappeared. But the answer is that it doesn't completely break down. And it looks like you get minerals impregnated, which keeps it together. But you've got the original stuff there too. And it has been really controversial in America, actually, because they have um, a big issue with the creationist lobby over there. And they're saying, oh, you see, this shows that dinosaurs aren't actually that old after all. And it's being used as an, as an argument against evolution. But uh, obviously, you know, the, the scientific analysis of it, the scientific explanations will prevail, I'm sure. sure. I mean, the, the, real, the real breakthrough for me as well was they managed to get the sequence of the protein. They looked at the amino acid building blocks that make up the protein and compared them with modern day animals and they weren't very similar to us but they were very similar to chickens and chickens of course are birds and the birds are the closest living relatives of the dinosaurs so the whole story sort of fitted together beautifully roll on jurassic park sounds fantastic now the story that i've picked out from this year it certainly isn't the most important but i thought it was rather fun and uh, it, it sort of has a festive theme perhaps if maybe you'll find yourself on boxing day sat down in front of those classic films uh, and this one in particular is um the jungle book one of my favorites indeed and we can all sing along and of course one of those great on, characters Helen. give us a little go on then i couldn't possibly unless everyone else joins in <laughs> cat's a good singer um, maybe later. Oh, I've got sore throat. Maybe later. Maybe later. Excuses. Anyway, the ki- the, there is a great character who sings about being the king of the swingers, and it turns out that they really are orangutans. Really are the king of the swingers when it comes to making their way through the forest, and they make best use of the energy that they have because essentially these creatures are great big balls of orange fur. And they're huge creatures um, that can't exactly walk along the end of a very thin branch and then grab onto the next one because they just fall off. Um, so a team of scientists from Birmingham University here in the UK decided to have 
look at just how it is that orangutans do get through the forest. And they found out that basically they they employ a technique known as tree sway, which is rather fun and essentially means that the orangutan find a nice springy tree with a fairly sort of small trunk and they climb a short way up it and then just kind of rock backwards and forwards and sort of springy far. You can kind of imagine this at home, sort of springy backwards and forwards until they swing far enough across to another um, small tree which they can grab onto and then kind of carry on through the forest. This is like Tarzan in reverse, isn't it? Because Tarzan swung from something suspended higher up, whereas these are swinging with something suspended from the ground. So flippy sort of from the ground. Yes, absolutely. Quite. And uh, and I don't quite know why these scientists felt they needed to do this, but they looked at the energetics, so how much energy these orangutans were using in this technique. And they decided that there was um, they were only using about half the energy that they would have if they had um, uh, ooh, if they'd been jumping directly from tree to tree. And then about a tenth of the energy if they'd climbed down the ground, walked across to the next tree and walked up another tree. And of course, that's also quite dangerous because it puts them in, in range of all those predators on the ground that might try and grab them. So I thought that was just a rather fun story and a very silly piece of research. I've got a very festive story here. Now, it may seem unlikely, but the very first Christmas gifts, as we all know, were gold, frankincense and myrrh. But they do have a connection to today's cutting-edge cancer research. Anyway, that's according to Cancer Research UK. So, for example, gold has really exciting potential for use in cancer research. So scientists are investigating the potential of gold nanoparticles for use in cancer imaging. And also the charity scientists are looking at treatments that could specifically target cancer cells using tiny nanoparticles of gold. And also, if you're into your medically useful bling, you could also try platinum, uh, which is actually a fundamental component of the cancer drugs cisplatin and carboplatin that Cancer Research UK was involved in developing. Now on to frankincense. What's frankincense got to do with cancer? Well, frankincense is a plant extract, and we all know that these can be really rich sources of biologically active molecules. And some scientists funded by Cancer Research UK are currently involved in what's called chemoprevention. That's trying to find these chemicals in plants that have the potential to prevent cancer. So some researchers up in Leicester are doing that and they're looking for example at that fantastic chemical resveratrol which is found in red wine, something called silibinin which is in milk thistle and curcumin which is found in the curry spice My favourite thing, curry. Yeah. Curry and red wine it also both... prevents Alzheimer's disease curcumin. Exactly, but to get, um, to get a biologically useful dose of red wine apparently you'd have to drink a thousand bottles a day and I'm sure even Chris you would struggle at that <laughs> You're <laughs> the one who said you had a hangover cat <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> and finally on to myrrh Myrrh is also a tree extract, and in the same way that molecules, um, the same way molecules that led to taxane drugs for cancer, including taxol, were actually isolated from extracts from yew trees. And now, Cancer Research UK scientists are trying to find out why some people with different types of cancer become resistant to these taxanes, this taxol treatment, and who won't become resistant to it. So, also, if you actually want to help fund some cutting-edge science this year, you can actually go to um, www.sendandgive.org, and that's Cancer. Research UK's virtual gifts and you can buy a lab coat for a scientist, you can support clinical trial or research near you and you can even buy some food for the yeast that they grow in the lab. You can't make a contribution to the lab's Christmas party which I'm sure would go down. No, because nothing says I love you like the gift of yeast. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not a yeast infection though. (laughs) Uh, Just to finish off, I noticed this um, when we we, we talked about this back in June and and it really sort of floated my boat, I thought it was hilarious. There's a company in New Zealand uh, called Via Lactia, they're a biotech company and they have found by sheer serendipity a cow 
which artificial well, we completely naturally produces skimmed milk. So most cows yeah. produce milk which's got three and a half percent fat, and this cow produces milk which's only got one percent fat. So they thought this is fantastic. I wonder what happens if we breed from this cow, and all of the cows' calves also have the trait. So it's a dominant trait. They don't know what the gene is yet, but their aim is to build a, a herd of these cows by 2011 that can be used to produce low-fat milk that's pre-skimmed, if you like. Uh, and then they found there's some other bonuses. So very high levels of omega-3 fatty acids in there, so that's good for your brain, reduces your risk of heart disease and stroke as well, which is another bonus. And then they found that um, it spreads, if they turn it into butter, this milk, it spreads straight from the fridge. So what do you think they called the cow? I remember this one. Marge. Marge. Yeah, so you got it. Uh, and when asked, uh, to, to, do they think this is going to, when, when people, other people were commentating, Ross, do you think this will make a major dent in the, in the dairy industry? They, of course, announced um, their, their, their thoughts, which were hurdly. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It is The Naked Scientist. It's our Christmas special with Kat, Helen, Dave and Chris. On the way, we'll be finding out the best way to cook your Christmas dinner, your Brussels sprouts, should you boil them, steam them or microwave them. We've done the experiment to find out. We'll also be finding out about the science of snowflakes and the science of quirkology. Richard Wiseman will be joining us to find out, amongst other things, what the design on your Christmas cards that you send says about you. But first of all, Manuel Costa's on the phone. Hello, Manuel. Hi, hi, Chris. Thanks for joining Um, us on The Naked Scientist. Uh, What would you like to talk about? Uh, it's, it's basically where the pins and needles sensation in your in your limbs, like your um, hands and your uh, feet. I just noticed that when, when I crouch down, or if I'm sleeping on my arms at work or something, um, when I wake up, there's um, I have this pins and needles sensation, and it's apparently quite normal. Something many other people have it. I just wanted to know what uh, what's the basis of this? Why does it happen? Okay, the nerves in your body have an incredibly high energy requirement, so they need a a big supply of blood and sugar to keep themselves going. If you lie on your arm, say, when you go to sleep, then the the common place for this to happen is actually in your forearm or up under your armpit. In fact, there is a condition called Friday night or Saturday night palsy. Yes, it's called Saturday night palsy. And this is where people go up the boozer and have a few. They come home and they fall asleep with their arm over the back of a chair and the right. arm the the arm of the chair pushing up under their arm compresses the nerve supplying their arm against their their humerus the upper arm bone and it squashes the nerve flat and you can actually get a nerve palsy because of it but more oh. normally when you go to sleep at night when you squash a nerve flat and you squash the arm you can reduce the blood flow down the nerve and this means that the brain doesn't get signals back into the spinal cord from the nerve because the either the interruption of the blood flow because of laying on your arm or just physically pushing on the nerve stops the proper flow of information. And so the brain starts wondering where the signal has gone from that bit of the body, and so it increases its sensitivity to whatever that nerve was supplying. And so you start to get spurious signals as though you could really feel that bit of your body. And it's a bit bit like phantom limb pain that you get when you have a part of the body amputated. All and right. when you restore the blood flow by moving in, the, in your sleep or rubbing or uh, sort of elevating the, the bit of the body that's starved of blood such as your leg or something then all the blood rushes back in the pressure is taken off the nerve as well and it starts to work again so you get your sensation restored and thankfully it's not harmful but it can also be a sign in in people who have other diseases like diabetes and and other damage to nerves it can be a sign that the nerve is deteriorating so as long as you're getting pins and needles that's good news but if you're there all the time then that might be a sign that something bad's happening but if you're just going to bed and laying on your arm it's nothing oh okay that's cool it's just it's just laying in bed on your arm what yeah. about 
I also have a thing where another like another part of my body gets pins and needles that doesn't seem to be the right bit. I'm not sitting on that leg. It's like sitting on one leg and then or one arm and the other arm gets pins and needles. It's kind of well, transferred. Any idea what that is? That's very interesting and I'm going to have to think about that because um, the only thing I can think of, Manuel, I have some funny... Um, uh, some funny thing where if I pinch my chest wall about nipple level, then I feel the pain of the pinch, not just next to my nipple, but also on my elbow on the same side. Oh. And uh, it's just sort of referred pain to my elbow, and I think it's crossed in a vein. I think I've got some nerves flowing sort of from my... Your wires are... Your wiring's yeah, crossed. Wiring I've got crossed wires, yeah. My wires are crossed. <laughs> I hope that answers the question anyway, Manuel. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. If you'd like to ask us any questions on The Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, Dave, what are we doing for Kitchen Science this week? Well, I don't know if you're a bit clumsy like me, and occasionally you're sitting at the table and you've got a nice nice buttered piece of toast, nice jam on it, really lovely, you're really looking forward to it. Somehow you knock it off the table and all of a sudden it's on the floor and it always seems to land butter side down. Now, we want to find out whether this is actually an urban myth or whether there's some real science behind it. It's got a really, really experiment. We want lots of people to do it at home, phone in so if you get lots of data. We just get a piece of toast, butter it, put it on the table the right way up, very gently push it off the side of the table and find out which way it lands. Maybe do it four or five times, phone in, tell us what the answer is. And if you've got a very expensive carpet... I'll put some newspaper down, a bit of plastic to protect Do you think the that carpet. that's affecting the... Re- do you think the carpet could be having an influence on the bread, though? And, and by putting the newspaper, you might destroy the effect. Do we not need a very expensive bit of carpet to test to make sure it's really, really happening? It's a fair test. It is possible. If anyone wants to put butter on their really expensive carpet at home, they're more than welcome, but don't sue me if you damage it. So do try and join us, thanks, Dave, for our big radio experiment live testing Does Bread Always Land Butter Side Down? So proper analysis, scientifically speaking, do it five times. Email chris at the Naked Scientist with your results. We need those results in as fast as possible, please. So get experimenting. Thank you for the call. All shall be revealed. Anyway, now, we all know what snowflakes are. They're those lovely white things that fall from the sky and stop the trains. But have you ever gone out and looked at them properly? They've got extremely intricate designs and symmetry that both scientists and artists have been absolutely fascinated by for years. So this week, we sent Mira sent the Lingam out to find out how these sub-zero designs actually come into being. It's that time of year again, when we're all secretly hoping to wake up on Christmas morning and see a nice layer of white coating our streets. That's right, the pleasurable sight of snow that makes the cold so much more bearable. But have you ever thought about the structure of the snowflakes that actually make up some of that snow? And how those intricate patterns are created that we see printed on our Christmas cards every year? Well, I spoke to Professor Kenneth Librecht of Caltech University and picked his brains about what snowflakes actually are. Well, snowflakes are basically made of ice. What makes them unique is they form from water vapor in the air, and when the water vapor is condensing to solid ice, it forms those beautiful patterns. Snowflakes form in a really distinctive way. That's how we all recognize them. Why do they form like that? What makes them kind of interesting is they have a very complex shape, but they're still symmetrical. And the real reason that works is the growth of the crystal is very sensitive to temperature and humidity. And so when the flake is falling, when it's forming in the atmosphere, they will start out growing into a small hexagon. That's because of the the way the water molecules hook up in the crystal and then the lattice and it'll form a small hexagon. But then the corners of the hexagon stick out a little farther into the air and so they'll tend to grow a little faster and the crystal can develop branches. And then as the branches grow, the growth is very sensitive to the conditions it sees. As this crystal is falling through the cloud, the temperature it sees changes slightly uh, all the time, as does the humidity. 
And uh, even very small changes can change the way the crystal grows. And so as this thing is falling, the growth of each arm will get very complex because of the path it takes through the clouds. So the final shape of an arm reflects the whole history of its growth. But each arm has the same history because they're all sort of connected together. And so each arm grows more or less in synchrony. And what you end up with is something that's very complex and yet still has this six-fold symmetry. But can you believe there are over 40 different classes of snowflakes? What causes these differences? They really grow in a remarkable variety of different types, plates and columns and branch structures. And one of my favorites is a capped column where there's a column with plates on either end. And they all grow at different temperatures. In fact, uh, the growth kind of oscillates between plates and columns as a function of temperature. You get plate-like crystals just below freezing and then columns uh, a little colder still, and then plates again when it's colder. No one quite understands why the crystals grow that way, but that's what they do. And since the conditions do vary a lot in the atmosphere, you get lots of different types. But the actual change in temperature to create these structures is actually really small, sometimes even just one or two degrees. That's right. The plates grow around minus two Celsius, and columns at minus five, and plates again at minus 15. So with just a few degrees causing all these changes, which temperature gives us the best-looking snowflake? Well, the best where the really nice-looking crystals tend to grow when it's pretty cold, around minus 15 Celsius. Those are these large stellar dendrites, stellar crystals, the ones that you really associate with snow crystals when you think of them. They're very thin plates, and they have beautiful branches and lots of structure. What about the myth that there aren't any two snowflakes alike? When you are growing a snowflake, the growth is so sensitive to temperature that uh, it tends to form a lot of different uh, possible shapes. If you were to add up the number of possible ways of making a snowflake, you easily find it's it's far greater than the total number of atoms in the universe. (laughs) So it's fair to say that if you go out looking, you'll never find two that are exactly alike. To finish off, I asked Kenneth for some tips on how we can make the most out of any snow we get this Christmas. Well, it's really fun to go looking for snowflakes, and you don't need any real equipment. A little magnifying glass helps. You can even see quite a bit with the naked eye. You'll find all sorts of different shapes. One of the places I like best is the windshield of a cold parked car. (laughs) It has a nice slope, and you can brush the crystals away and look at them. Better make sure it's your own car, though. So there you go, a nice family activity to do together over the Christmas period. That's if we manage to get any snow. To see the different classes of snowflakes, to aid you in your snowflake spotting, or simply just to find out more information about these ice structures, you can go online to Kenneth's website at snowcrystals.com. And that was naked scientist Mira Senthalingham talking to Kenneth Lebrecht from Caltech University. And yes, if you want to find out even more about snowflakes and the physics behind their design, we do have an article on our website. And to find it, just go to www.thenakedscientist.com slash articles. Thank you very much, Cats the Naked Scientists, with Chris, Cat, Dave and Helen. Still to come, the science of sprouts. And we'll be finding out how, you, how best you should cook your Christmas sprouts to preserve all the goodness. Plus, we'll be talking to Professor Richard Wiseman. He's from the University of Hertfordshire and he's done a lot of work on quirkology. In other words, those quirky things. For instance, what do the Christmas cards that you send say about you? What about the, the jokes you find in crackers? Do you like them or hate them? And are you a natural joke teller? And what does your star sign actually mean to you in terms of the behaviour that you subsequently show? If you'd like to join in on the programme, email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. So Naked Scientists with Chris, Kat, Helen and Dave. Don't forget, we're doing our kitchen science experiment. Does bread always land butter side down or is it an urban legend? Please toast a bit of bread, 
butter it, and then gently knock it off the table and see which side it lands. And tell us, do it five times, best of five. Now, Dave, a couple of quick questions for you. This one's from Bob, and I've also got one from Hallie. And Bob says, why is it that when you see pictures or photographs of stars, they always appear as crosses? And on a similar sort of vein, Hallie says, when they've been watching planets and stars in the night sky, why is it that the stars appear to be twinkling much more than the planets that don't appear to twinkle? Okay, start with the first one. The first one is to do with how big telescopes are made. They're actually, they're actually done with two mirrors, and we have one big primary mirror, and then there's a secondary mirror held in fr- above that primary mirror, sort of above it, and then that reflects the light back down to where you look through it or you put a camera. Um, now, the secondary mirror is in the middle of a tu- the tube with the big one on, and they've got to support it somehow. They tend to have four supports, sort of vertical supports, to hold it up, otherwise it's going to fall down. Um, and actually, that star shape you see around the stars is basically a really, really, really out-of-focus picture of the these, this star shape. It's also called diffraction pattern, and that's what's producing all these little stars on all of the things. And why do stars twinkle more than planets? It's basically because planets are actually fairly large. You can actually see them on the back of your eye. So it's a bit like having 100 stars all in a very close together. And all those 100 stars would be twinkling. But on average, some of them are going to be twinkling brighter and some of them are going to be twinkling darker. So on average, they tend to twinkle less when you see them all together. So it's going to be 20 of them are going to be brighter, 20 of them are going to be darker. So on average, it's not going to twinkle very much. Thank you very much, Dave. One quick one for you, Kat. This is from uh, Mark Stewart, who says, Chris and the team, Merry Christmas. Um, I understand that AIDS is a disease of the immune system, but after watching a TV documentary recently, I was surprised to learn that many AIDS sufferers actually die of cancers as well. I couldn't work out how the two are connected, so how does a depleted immune system bring on cancer? This is a really, really interesting one. It's something that's only started to become clear uh, relatively recently, um, the role of the immune system in preventing cancer. Now, for example, in um, patients with HIV, they do have a very depleted immune system. This leaves them vulnerable to infections, which things like viruses that can cause cancer. And... um, and also, they, it's thought now that the immune system is kind of actively patrolling your body, spotting early, dodgy-looking cells and getting rid of them. But obviously, sometimes that goes wrong and cancer can develop. So um, it's, it's really becoming a, an interesting field, is, is how the immune system may actually be able to recognise some cancer cells. Uh, and then whether we can turn it into overdrive and use immunotherapy to really kind of kickstart the immune system into killing cancer cells in patients and that's a very active area of research and another thing that's quite interesting is that the whole role of the immune system first started to become clear partly through studying people with HIV also through studying um, patients who've had transplants because they take immunosuppressing drugs and are also much more likely to get certain types of cancers so that started to make a link and then also patients uh, with melanoma it was noticed that some people with melanoma just spontaneously get better and that's thought uh, to be that their immune system has suddenly woken up and, and recognised their cancer. And it's a really active field of research studying how the immune system's actually involved in all this. And we'll probably in the future see a lot more coming out about it. Thank you very much, Kat. Well, to take a slightly lighter look at science now, let me ask you guys a quick question. What do you call a train loaded with toffee? Uh, on, Kat, you're normally pretty. Yeah, I knew you'd get that one. And what about this then? Um, why are ghosts bad liars, Helen? Oh, you know, I just can't think. Chris, tell me why <laughs> Dave, I go on, Dave. I have no idea. Let's ask Professor Richard Wiseman, who joins us from the University of Harvard. Hello, Richard. Hello there. Now, do you know the answer? Why are ghosts bad liars? Ghosts and bad liars because you can see right through them. Boom! Yeah, you got it. Now, look, these are all rubbishy cracker jokes. Something you've they're been terrible. looking at. Um, you acknowledge yourself they're terrible, but you've been researching 
all about the subject of cracker jokes. Why, why do we have this obsession with them? I think they're really interesting from a, a social psychological perspective because I think one of the key questions is why aren't they better? You know, what, what is going on Please, that we all want some... to tell each other these terrible jokes? And I think that's the, the real key to their uh, longevity is that if you open a cracker with a good joke and you tell it and it falls flat, well, clearly it's, it's your problem as a joke teller because you had good material and, 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 and you failed. If you've got a bad joke and you get no laugh, in fact, if you get a groan, well, you can just blame the joke. There's nothing embarrassing going on socially. So I think they're actually rather clever. What they're doing is about a kind of group experience. We're all going, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. Um, but it's not putting any pressure on the person whose job it is to tell the joke. So you've done some actual physical research on the types of jokes that get told and the types of people that like and don't like telling them. What did you find? Well, uh, when we asked people, um, you know, do you enjoy telling cracker jokes? It was the people that were the, the self-confessed poor joke tellers that said, yeah, that, that's really what I enjoy. And part of it is, of course, the joke's written down for them and it, they're pretty short jokes. So you don't have that terrible moment when, uh, you know, your uncle at the, the dinner table has just gone on for 20 minutes and then just suddenly forgotten the punchline of the, the story. So that they're short jokes. And as I say, they're not putting the joke teller under any pressure. So it was the poor joke tellers that tended to like them. And was there any correlation with the cost of the cracker? There wasn't. Uh, we had uh, some very expensive crackers. We had some very cheap ones. Uh, and we asked people to come online to rate how funny they found the jokes without knowing whether they were looking at a, uh, uh, a sort of expensive or cheap cracker. And we found no correlation at all. So if you're after good jokes, there's no need to spend big bucks on the crackers. That's the big scientific breakthrough we can, uh, we can uh, say is actually official science. Thanks, Richard. We're looking at another aspect of uh, Christmas. Uh, tell us about your work on Christmas cards, because you've been looking now at the kind of cards that people send can tell you something about their personality traits. Absolutely. This was another online experiment we carried out with uh, the Daily Telegraph. And some of the previous research had looked at the size of the card and how much you're spending on it. And again, from a social psychological perspective, you're saying a lot about yourself. If you're saying, look, here's a really expensive card. First of all, you're saying, I'm the sort of person that can afford a card like that. And second, you're saying, and you're the sort of person as a recipient that I think is worth that sort of uh, money. So there's a lot. To, uh, there was uh, previous research in the area. What we did was ask people to fill out a basic personality questionnaire told us whether they were an extrovert or an introvert, uh, whether they were creative or not creative and, and so on and then tell us what type of Christmas card they tended to give, whether it was one with a traditional um, design on the front such as a religious scene uh, or a more kind of abstract one, you know, perhaps uh, uh, some, some holly or something like that in a, a rather abstract pattern and then we can match those two up so that when somebody gives you a Christmas card you can get a little bit of insight into their personality. What did you find? Well, the um, most traditional cards, the, the typical religious scenes, were associated with people who weren't quite so emotionally stable as, uh, as, as most. And uh, so this is a, a level of what's called, a signal of what's called neuroticism. It's not very good for and Christmas, is it, if the religious people not. are unstable? Well, well that's mo most of the research shows. It's not so much they're unstable. Uh, it, it's that they're rather anxious about the world. That's why they come to believe in religion, in part, is because it provides a kind of big comfort blanket for them. You know, deep down, they're, they're quite anxious uh, about the world. Uh, 
So that kind of fitted in, again, with some previous research. Um, we found with the very abstract designs that these were people that scored highly on a scale which is known as openness uh, to experience. So it's those people that tend to be obviously more creative, uh, open to new experience in their lives, um, people who would, would, would really like to look at an abstract pattern and try and find meaning uh, and within it rather than being told rather obviously by the artist what that meaning is. I like to send Again, funny cards though, Richard. So what does that say about me? That says a lot. We, we did have a lot of people in those kind of, you know, uh, cute sort of dog with Santa hat on uh, or, or, or funny card. Um, I had they one that had Father Christmas sitting on a chimney using it as a toilet and it said underneath, you know when you've been really bad this year. You see... I think that's just sick. I think that's terrible. You should send a card like that. But, you know, each to their own. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, yes, we, the uh, people who tended to, send it, send, tended to send those cards were the extroverts uh, rather than the introverts, so people who are more socially uh, oriented. Uh, and also, uh, if, if you've got any glitter on the card, that was heavily correlated with getting the card from an extrovert because we know that uh, extroverts, their brains tend to be sort of understimulated. So they're constantly looking for other people, for noisy environments, for bright environments, in this case for glitter on the card to stimulate them a bit get a bit more get them into that comfort zone Richard, I make my own cards. What does that say about me? That means you're very mean, um, and you should get out... <laughs> Not true. ...very, very mean. Uh, I can tell you, as a psychologist, you need to get into the shops, uh, just throw but all I that card of, stuff away. I put a lot of my away. own energy and my own kind of thought mm. process into yeah. it. But not your own money, interestingly enough. Um, so, uh, but she has no, to buy the materials, Richard, doesn't she? That's presumably. true. And, do, and these, yes, days, these, th these days it's expensive. That's true. Well, I think what's interesting... <laughs> About that, he says, backtracking very quickly. Uh, I think what's interesting about that is you're saying a lot about yourself. You're saying, look, I'm, I'm a person who's going to invest my very valuable time in making this thing. I'm a creative type of person. So, it's, it's, uh, so yeah, again, you're telling us a, a great deal. You're not going to go into the high shop and, and just sort of a high street rather than just buy something uh, from the shops. It, it's about creating something individual for each of the people you know. So it's quite interesting what you can get out of um, cards. But let's, let's move it on a bit because... The, the wise men allegedly followed a star to find where Jesus was. So let's look at astrology for a minute. What does astrology tell you? Is there any basis in that at all? I, I don't think so. I mean, one of the, the chapters in the Quackology book is devoted to looking at some of the evidence for astrology. And certainly people believe it's the case. Certainly when they read their horoscope, they go, oh my goodness, you know, that describes me. But of course, that's not science. That's not a controlled experiment. And lots of those horoscopes, in fact, even if you employ a professional astrologer, they will give you a reading which lots of people think, yes, that, that's true for me. There's nothing special about that reading. There's nothing idiosyncratic in there for you. It's just you read meaning into these fairly general statements. And some of the statements will be double headers, uh, such as, um, you know, sometimes you enjoy uh, going along to parties, other times, you know, you want to be alone. Well, of course that's true of everyone. There's nobody that would always want to be at a party or always be on their own. Other times there's statements which we really like to believe about ourselves. So if someone says, you know, that the stars suggest it's going to be a great week for you and you're the sort of person that's got a, a lot of untapped creative potential, we all go, yes, that's, that's incredibly insightful. How on earth did you know? So, so astrology, in that sense, is built on psychology. But I, I don't think that uh, there's any way of looking up to the heavens or looking at where the stars are when you were born and actually predicting your future. That's quite good. I wonder if Jesus knew that when he was born on the 25th of December and he knew it was going to be Christmas. What an amazing possibility. Richard, thank you very much. Pleasure.
That's Professor Richard Wiseman. He's from the University of Hertfordshire. He has a fantastic book out. I spent this weekend reading it, and it's called Quirkology, and it's published by Macmillan. Dave, what have you got people doing for kitchen science? Um, trying to get people to push buttered toast off the table, see whether it lands butter side up or down. We've had a couple of phone calls in already. John in Colchester's had it landing up butter side down eight times. Every time he tries it, different heights all seems to work. Butter side down. Butter side down. It's looking like a very unlucky guy. And Sonia from Kettering, four out of five times butter side down. So. Bar Gavin Kettering says his bread's landing butter side down three times out of five. Mark in Bletchley, not so successful. I'm throwing butter bread all over my kitchen and I've given up, which is a bit of a worry. Anyway, if you want to have a go, we're doing a big radio experiment. Does your bread always land butter side down? So please, best of five trials, push your toast off the edge of your table and see which way up or down it goes. Now, one of those great joys of Christmas, Brussels sprouts, which I think people have very strong feelings about one way or the other. How about you guys in the studio? How are you going to cook your sprouts at Christmas? Or are you going to have any? Can I love Brussels sprouts. I think we probably will have them, and I, I hope that my mum might steam them or cook them in the microwave. And then supply gas masks afterwards. I actually tried curried sprouts the other day, and they were really good. <laughs> That's adding insult <laughs> no, to injuries. Really nice. <laughs> I can really recommend curried, curried Brussels sprouts. It's a little-known fact. Anyway, we've had an email from Heather Coleman, who said she's worked out that the best taste and texture for Brussels sprouts is to steam them for uh, ten and a half minutes um, and eight minutes if you're doing broccoli. That's something else. Anyway, and this leaves them both properly cooked but not soggy. But she's interested in how steaming rates nutritionally versus boiling. So which way of cooking do you think will have the best outcome for the healthiness of your sprouts? We are sent out, Ben, to find out. <laughs> Christmas is a time of many traditions, and one of these is, of course, your Christmas dinner. And a Christmas dinner wouldn't be a true Christmas dinner without Brussels sprouts. Love them or hate them, they're almost always there on your plate come Christmas, and you have to eat one or two. But if you are going to eat sprouts, what's the best way to cook them and still keep all of their nutritional value? I went to the Medical Research Council's Human Nutrition Research Labs in Cambridge and met up with Kate Guberg, who set up an experiment to help us find out. I divided the sprouts into five different groups. Frozen sprouts, raw sprouts, boiled sprouts, microwave sprouts and steam sprouts. And they were then homogenised in acid to preserve any vitamin C that was remaining. So why are we looking for the amount of vitamin C in these sprouts? Obviously cooking anything that you do to the Brussels sprout will actually affect the amount of vitamins in that vegetable. We want, really want to see what's left after various ways of cooking them. And can you consider the same thing for other vitamins, or will this only show us for vitamin C? All the other uh, water-soluble vitamins will be affected in, in a similar way by the leaching of the water when you cook them. They'll be lost into the water as well. So it'll give us an idea of perhaps what's left of the other vitamins. So what's the next step now then? I'm going to react it with various uh, chemicals to give a fluorescent colour, which we can measure to give an idea of the amount of vitamin C that's still left in the vegetables themselves. So you mix in chemicals that will make vitamin C glow effectively, and by recording quite how bright the glow is, that shows you how much vitamin C is left. That's right. Um, We also have various amounts that we know of vitamin C, and we can compare the amount of glowing that we get with the known amount, and that will give us an absolute figure that we can use to uh, calculate the vitamin C levels. Well, while we wait to find out how much vitamin C is in our different types of sprouts, I've met up with Tony Steer, who works here at the MRC Human Nutrition Unit. So, Tony, it's Christmas time, traditionally a time to be stuffing our faces with rich, fatty foods. But what can people do to avoid poor nutrition at Christmas? Look, the reality is Christmas Day is a once-off. It happens once a year, and really, it's time to enjoy yourself and 
have a great day. I think the problem happens when Christmas Day turns into a whole month. And one of the big culprits here is the buffet. But buffets are very popular at office Christmas parties and that sort of thing. So what's the problem with a buffet? If you imagine walking into a room with a buffet table and it has just nothing but cheese sandwiches on, how many cheese sandwiches would you really eat? Probably not very many. Now you imagine the same room again. You go in and the buffet table is covered with a whole variety of foods. Your sausage rolls, mince pies, crisps, nuts, biscuits. Now imagine how much you would eat. I think I'd fill my plate a couple of times with that sort of choice. Absolutely. And so the more variety you have, the more likely you are to eat too much. So remember, if you're going to a party, it's a social situation. You're there to have a really good chat with your friends. So make sure probably you do more talking than eating. So now we have our sprout results back. We can see what difference it makes with the different cooking mechanisms. So what have we actually found? Well, I mean, there's no real surprises. We can see that cooking sprouts, no matter what method you do, does actually result in a loss of vitamin C. Boiling the sprouts, actually, we lost up to 60% of the vitamin C. And that's really gone into the water. The water you throw away down your sink contains the vitamin C that you could have had in your body. The steaming, uh, we saw a loss of still 40%. And microwaving, we had very similar results. So any form of cooking Brussels sprouts seems to reduce the amount of vitamin C in there quite a lot. But you said you also got some fresh ones and froze them. What difference does it make to freeze them? Well, actually, I was quite surprised. Um, The frozen Brussels sprouts actually showed a loss of about 30% on vitamin C. So obviously, if you then go on to cook those Brussels sprouts, you're going to see even more of a loss. So I think the the message is that the the best is fresh. So by the looks of it, the best way to get lots of vitamin C is to eat raw sprouts. But maybe we should just give up on sprouts and eat oranges. They're rich in vitamin C, aren't they? Well, actually, I mean, it's funny, but Brussels sprouts actually are very rich in vitamin C, more so than oranges. They actually contain more vitamin C than oranges. And even with the uh, loss of vitamin C in cooking, a portion of Brussels sprouts is going a long way to fulfilling your daily requirement, which is 40 milligrams per day. So I think the message is that no matter how you cook them, they are still worth eating, and it's definitely worth trying to get your children to eat Brussels sprouts, even if they only manage the odd one or two. Sprouts are packed full of goodness, and would you believe they would fend off scurvy better than an orange? And to maximise the nutrition, you need to steam them uh, or microwave them, and that's fresh sprouts, because freezing them, um, and this goes for any fruit or vegetable, actually causes ice crystals to form, which breaks down the cells and really cuts down on the nutrients that you're going to get. Except when the vegetables are frozen in factories, um, they froze them very, very quickly, which means that the ice ice crystals are really tiny. The quicker you freeze things, the smaller the ice crystals, and so they really don't do much damage. So you're still kind of keeping quite a bit of that nutrition in there. It is the Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave, Helen and Kat. It's our Christmas special and coming up shortly we'll be finding out where a magnet gets its sticking power from and we'll also be finding out the results and the reasons why you're seeing either your bread landing butter side up or butter side down. Are you doing the experiment and what are your results? Tell us Chris at thenakedscientist.com Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information get online at nakedscientist.com you are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris, Kat, Helen and Dave, a full house today. Now it's time to catch up with Diana O'Carroll for our Question of the Week. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week on The Naked Scientists. This week we have a very sticky question. Hello, my name is Brian Starkey and my question is, from where do permanent magnets get their energy or power? 
I could put a fridge magnet on a fridge, and it seems as if it will stay there forever with no sign of any power source. Also, if I try to push the light poles of two bar magnets together, my arms will grow tired long before the magnets grow weak. Yet again, there is no power or energy source. Can we not harness this invisible and seemingly endless source of energy? Why do magnets stick to fridges like your granddad sticks to sherry for the whole of Christmas Day? I'm Alistair Ray. I taught physics at the University of Birmingham until I retired two or three years ago. At this time of year, many of us will decorate our fridges by attaching magnets, carrying pictures of Christmas puddings, holly, Father Christmas, snowmen and so on. And one advantage of these magnets is they're easily removed and replaced when Christmas is over. Ryan Starkey asks, how can they stay in the fridge when there is no obvious power source holding them up? Well, the first point to note is that we don't need any energy to stand still. A stationary car with its engine turned off doesn't use any petrol. Power is required only when the engine starts turning and the car starts moving. What we have in the case of a fridge magnet is the magnetic force pulling the magnet against the iron door. This then leads to a frictional force that stops the magnet sliding down under gravity. But once the magnet is in place, no energy or power is consumed keeping it there. It's not very different in principle to sticking the magnet onto the fridge using glue. When Brian pushes the two light poles of a magnet together, he has to apply a force and use energy. If they are then allowed to move apart, this energy is released and converted back into motion. And if he holds them together without letting them move, no more power is needed. It's perhaps easier to understand this if we think of the magnets being supported by a rigid frame instead of by a person. There's no movement, there's no consuming of power. Why then do Brian's arms grow tired if he's not doing any work? Well, this is all to do with biology and the complex way our muscles work. Chemical energy has to be burned to keep them stiff and able to exert pressure. But magnets are not like that. They exert a force, push each other apart, and they do not consume any power as long as they don't move. We could use magnetism to power our Christmas tree lights as it will induce an electrical current in a conductor. That's the basic principle of a dynamo. But this only happens when you move the conductor through the magnetic field, so you'll need something else to power this motion. Anyone got a perpetual motion machine? Anyway, have you ever found those tree lights in a tangle? Listen to this. Hi, this is Francis Tapon, and I'm calling from San Francisco, and I've listened to The Naked Scientist while I was walking across America for seven months, and I'm addicted to your show. I had a question, though, while I was walking, and it's about tangling wires, because I would put my MP3 player into a pocket, and every single time I pull it out, the wires are completely tangled up. In fact, they're so tangled, I couldn't even do it myself. My question is, why do wires get tangled? And following that, we'll be dealing with a problem that never goes away. Hello, this is Anand. I'm calling from Colchester, and this is my question. I want to know how the boomerang works and what's the principle behind that. So if you know why headphones and fairy lights never seem to come out of the drawer in the neat loops you put them away in, or why boomerangs come back, let me know by sending an email to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. Alternatively, put your ideas in our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's all for this question of the week. Merry magnetic Christmas, guys. Thanks, Diana. And yet again, this question did get a great response on the forum with TechMind saying, you can think of it as a bit like a spring and asking, if I squash the spring between my fingers, and it keeps pushing back. Where does that power come from? Obviously not a battery in the spring. And he and Light Arrow both got it spot on saying that you only use energy when something moves against a force. Now onto the next question is why do headphone leads get more tangled than you ever could have imagined? I want to know this because my knitting wool always gets tangled up as well. And why do boomerangs come back? Just email question of the week at thenakedscientist.com with your answers or go to thenakedscientist.com slash forum. 
Thank you very much, Kat. It is The Maker Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen and me, and it's our Christmas special, and in a second we're going to be finding out the answer to this toast-tumbling conundrum. Why does it always land butter-side down? Fancy listening to The Naked Scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Okay, is it an urban legend or is it scientific fact that bread always lands butter side down? Dave, what's going on over there on that side of the room? Well, yeah, I asked you to butter some toast and gently push it off a table and see whether it lands butter side up or butter side down. Um, John in Colchester and Sonia already found, found it mostly... F- but ended up bottom side, butter side down. So did Bar Gavin Kettering, um, someone on the forum, and Eddie in Northampton. Just heard from Krishna in Kettering, also saying three out of five times it landed butter side down. So it does seem to land butter side down more often than not. Uh, I'll just try it here now. I've got a buttered piece of toast and a thing on the floor, and flip, knock it down. Right, upside down yeah, on the floor. So I'm obviously unlucky. Down. So do you know what's going on, Chris? Well, to suss out the science behind uh, buttered bread behaving badly, we thought we would ask our good friend from Down Under, and that is Dr. Carl Krishornitsky. Well, it goes back a long way. Uh, it goes back to the Victorian poet and satirist James Payne, P-A-Y-N, in 1844, who wrote, I've never had a piece of toast, particularly long and wide, but fell upon a sanded floor and always on the buttered side. Now, some people wrongly claim that the way the butter makes it land buttered side down but the weight of the butter is less than 10% of the total weight of the typical slice of toast and most of this butter gets sucked into the middle so it doesn't have much effect upon the centre of gravity or the rotational dynamics so if it's not but, the butter and it's no, well, and so what actually is it? well uh, it was Matthews who discovered this in 1995 Robert Matthews a physicist who's also a journalist he wrote a paper for the European Journal of Physics called Tumbling Toast Murphy's Law and the Fundamental Constants and he firstly became interested in this in 1994 when he read a paper in the New Scientist claiming that every time now listen to this every time a book slid off a desk it would always land with a face that had been upwards now pointing down in other words as it fell it would rotate half not one, not one and a half, but only half a turn. And he tried the experiment and saw it was absolutely correct. So he did many tests with toast and he found that it had very little to do with the weight of the butter or aerodynamics, mostly controlled by gravity. The Earth's gravity pulls the leading edge of the toast down as it slides off the table. So you get that torque, that twist. Once the centre of gravity of the toast is no longer supported by the table, the Earth pulls down the leading edge and it starts tumbling and the tables are at a certain height and so under Earth's gravitational field, it has time to rotate only half a turn. And then he discovered a very neat application. By realising what the solution was, he thought that if you give the toast, as you notice at beginning to head for freedom, a quick swipe with the side of the hand, which minimises the amount of time that the toast is exposed to the gravitationally induced torque, the toast will descend to the floor, keeping its buttered side uppermost. Number one... Well, the second application is you can butter your toast on both sides, so at least one side is always up. Or number three, you can eat your toast off the top of the fridge so the buttered toast gets enough time to do a full rotation and land buttered side up. I was going to say, you just need to have a taller table because then it would have more time to do a complete rather than a half revolution as it fell. Exactly correct. 
I got sent uh, a copy of the Journal of Irreproducible Results recently, and they'd actually done experiments where they had compared the colour of the carpet to the colour of the jam and, and, the bre- and the butter on the toast, and they found that the darker the jam and the lighter the carpet, the more likely it was to land uh, butter side down, in other words, jam side down, because of the stain potential. Ah, yes. Well, now they've gone beyond um, Murphy's Law to another law, which is the law of maximum cussedness or maximum inconvenience. So if you've got yourself a very expensive and white carpet, the toast will migrate preferentially to where it will cause the most damage. I think it's similar to the, the people that suggested that perhaps you could power spaceships by having a blob of tomato sauce held out in space and a supply of white shirts quite close to them, and the attraction between the two would pull a space rocket along. Ah, yes, well, there's an, a similar version, which is the cats, which always want to land uh, feet down, and you tie onto their backs some toast, butted side up, and then there's a fight between them, and it will just hover. The cat and the toast both fighting to land butted side down or feet down. They will hover above the floor. This explains the humming noise that you always get from UFOs, proof positive that there are people out there. Wonderful. Thank you very much to Dr. Carl. That's science writer and broadcast Dr. Carl Kroshelnitsky. He was talking to me from Sydney in Australia. So, Dave, he's given us two intriguing things to think about. One of them is how you solve the problem of the toast turning butter side down by giving it a quick swipe. So, can we test that? We can test that. I have some toast here, and I hope the cleaners in the BBC aren't going to um, get me in trouble. But here we go. I have a piece of toast on the piece of table. I'm going to hit it as hard as I can. Hopefully, it'll land butter side up. Absolutely great. So it does actually work. So obviously you've got to be more committed in knocking your toast onto the floor. So if you see it's going to go, then you've really got to give it a helping hand. Yeah, and then it'll land. Now what about his other point, which was that if you eat off the top of the fridge, that should negate the problem. You should have a time to make a complete revolution of the toast. So it should land butter side up. Oh, I can try this. I'm going to stand on top of the table. <laughs> this is hilarious. I'll tell you what, with, you know the latest Christmas cracker is that Santa's got to have a seatbelt in his sleigh for reasons of elf and safety. I hope elf and safety don't see what Dave's doing, because it's... It'll all be fine. OK, so I've got the toast up here, maybe two, two and a half metres, three metres up. <laughs> and I'm going to push it gently off. I have no idea whether this is going to work. What's the answer? What's... It worked! Hooray! Okay, can we do it? You better do it again just to check that it's not, um, it's not a fraud. Um, I can try. So I should have picked the bread up for you, Dave. Sorry about that. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay. Toast on, the, on, the piece, on a piece of plastic up here. Push it off gently. Ooh. I have to say, that's one well, both ways. Best of three. Keep going. I mean, well, this, is very, this is very rough, isn't it? But, I mean, it, it seems to work. Yeah, I think it's definitely a fact. I think when you get too high, it's quite hard to get it to drop straight. Certainly giving Dave some exercise climbing up and down the table. (laughs) When we tried it, there were some bouncing issues as well. Oh dear, that's too butterside. So the bottom, oh so well. the bottom line is that, that we need to t- tinker with the height a bit more. It's going to be related to how to the dynamics of pushing it off and all that kind of stuff anyway. So, But definitely hitting it hard works beautifully. One quick question from uh, Kerwin in Colchester, Dave. He says, uh, does it make a difference if the toast is hot or cold when you put the butter on uh, in terms of the dynamics of the... The only thing that might affect it is if it's flexible. That w- will affect the dynamics because it's not going to twist in the same way if it can bend. So if it, I'm not quite sure whether that's going to help or hinder it. But it's definitely an effect if it's flexible. And I will leave everybody with this question, which has been sent in by Jim Polson, and he says, We have an ongoing debate at work about terminal velocity. Pretty fun, given that we work at a bank. The following question has been posed, but we have no resolution. Is a fly able to fly faster than its terminal velocity? What does everyone think about that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't spend enough time sitting around thinking about these things. <laughs> but it's a good question. I, I reckon it's possible. I reckon it's possible. Because a fly doesn't drop very fast if you just drop it, does it? A very, very small fly, if it's quite a power, might be able to have enough power to move itself faster than it's just under its weight. I don't know.
Thank you. Well, if you can help us with that, then do send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com. That is it for our live programmes for 2007. We'll be back in 2008, but we do have some Christmas presents for you in the next couple of weekends stored up. So do join us. Even though we won't be here, we'll be probably tucking into mince pies and things. But have a very nice Christmas. Have a wonderful New Year. And a massive thank you to our wonderful team who do an amazing job. Have a great Christmas and see you next year. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.